0: In July of 1961, 38 members of the Green Bay Packers got together for the first day of training camp. Now, any Packers fans in here? Just curious. I don't care about football, but this illustration is great, so I was just curious. Um, The prior season had ended with a heartbreaking loss to the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFL championship. This was pre-Super Bowl. It was like six years later the Super Bowl started. And so the Packers lost, and now they're back, and they're ready to jump into another season, and they're hoping for another shot at the championship. And famous coach, now famous coach, Vince Lombardi began training camp with what's now a famous speech. And his biographer, David Moranis, explains what happened. He says, quote, he took nothing for granted, Coach Lombardi. He began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. He began with the most elemental statement of all. Gentlemen, he said, holding a pigskin in his right hand, this is a football. Now think of who he's talking to, right? Dozens of professional athletes who worked harder than anyone to get where they were. He was, he was speaking to one of the best teams in the league who had just a few months earlier come within minutes of winning the highest prize their sport could offer. Of course they know what a football is, right? But Coach Lombardi was convinced that the way to build his team, the way to best build up a good football team was by going back to the basics, by starting with the fundamentals of the sport. And this wasn't just like a, a, a speech either. You know, and then he went back to normal coaching. No, that year at training camp, he started with page one in the playbook. They learned how to tackle. They relearned how to throw. They relearned how to catch. It was so simple, in fact, that one wide receiver said, Hey, coach, could you slow down a little? You're going too fast for us. He's being sarcastic. Well, as we look at this passage this morning... It's one that brings us back to the fundamentals of what it means to follow Jesus. John is telling us of how Jesus begins his ministry by calling his first followers, his first disciples. These are five different men, six if you count John the Baptist, who begin this life-changing journey of discipleship, which is following Jesus. And as we read their stories, we're given these basics. Just as Coach Lombardi held up that ball and said, this is a football In our text this morning, God is saying, this is discipleship. This is what it means to follow my son, Jesus. And the reality is all of us need to be reminded of this, don't we? We need to be reminded of the basics. Some of us have followed Jesus for for a really long time, and we know what it's like to grow stagnant in our faith, to, to lose the first love that we once had when we first met Jesus. And we need to be stirred afresh to see the joys of what it means to follow Christ, the simplicity of faith. Others, maybe you're, you're new to the faith or you're not even sure yet. You're just exploring Christianity and, and we need these fundamentals as well because out there there are all these competing ideas about what it means to be a Christian. But what does God's word say about the fundamentals, the basics of following him? And this passage answers that question for us this morning. But I love how it answers the question. It does it in the form of an invitation. We see three times in this text, and we saw it last week as well, this invitation to come and see who Jesus is. First John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God, there he is, go go see who he is. Then Jesus invites Andrew and this other follower of John, come and see who I am. And Philip, this new disciple, goes and tells Nathaniel who doubts, and then he says, listen, come see for yourself. See, we tend to think of following Jesus as merely a list of to-dos, right? Here's the checklist i gotta, I got to walk through. and Listen, there are certainly imperatives. There are commands that we must follow. But first and foremost, discipleship is an invitation to, to know a person before it is a list of commands to be followed. And that's what Jesus shows us this morning. And so we're going to walk through these verses, John 1, 35 through 51, and we're going to see four fundamentals of discipleship. It's an invitation, I'm just going to lay them out for you first, to first come and examine Jesus. It's number one. Number two, to come and follow Jesus. Number three, to come and share Jesus. And number four, to come and worship Jesus. So number one, first we see an invitation. Discipleship is an invitation to come and examine Jesus. So the passage begins, John the Baptist is standing with two of his disciples. One we later learn is Andrew. The other one is unnamed, but it is probably the Apostle John who wrote this book. But we don't know for sure. And John the Baptist fulfills his mission as a pointer to Jesus. If you didn't hear last Sunday's sermon, I encourage you to listen to it, where Pastor Clint showed us the identity and mission and vision of Jesus. And John's job is is to point people to Jesus. And so that's what he's doing right here. There he is, verse 36, behold, the Lamb of God, the one I've been telling you about, the one who's greater than me. He's here. So go see for yourself who he is. That's what John is telling his disciples. He's saying, go examine Jesus for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. And we see in verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, Jesus' question to these two seekers has a a deeper meaning. He's not just asking, what are these strange men doing following me? right? John's trying to get at something deeper here. There's actually not a lot of details in this story, but what John is is saying is, no, Jesus was asking them, what are you like really seeking? What what do you want out of life? What is your pursuit? John's disciples respond by calling him teacher, rabbi, and they ask, where are you staying? They they want to spend an extended amount of time hearing from him. They want to examine and see if this Jesus is who John the Baptist says he is. And how does Jesus respond to this question, where are you staying? Verse 39, come and see. Tells us that they stayed with him that day from the 10th hour, which was 4 o'clock on. Now what did they do? Listen, they weren't just... Like, Jesus, we want to see your apartment. We want to know what you did with the place. You know, did you go to Ikea? How do you, how do you decorate? No, they, they presumably sat down and spoke with him about who he was. They examined Jesus and they accepted his invitation. We see another invitation to examine Jesus again in verse 46, where Philip, a brand new follower of Jesus, tells Nathaniel, who's doubtful about this Jesus person, he says, come and see. Who he is. See, there's this distorted view of Christianity today that essentially says you, you just have to suppress all questions to be a disciple of Jesus. You can't have an inquisitive nature. But that's the complete opposite of what we see here, isn't it? Jesus invites us to come and examine him. John says, Don't just take my word for it, go see for yourself. Jesus has nothing to hide. He's not worried that you're going to find any holes in this Christianity thing, because guess what? There are none. So he says, come, examine me. See, it saddens me to hear of people, and maybe this is your your story, of who grew up in supposedly Christian environments that sort of just shut down any inquisitive nature, this type of false Christianity that says, you just accept what we say, believe what we tell you, don't ask any questions, and if you do, we'll kick you out. Right? That's more expressive of Jesus' enemies as you read the gospel than it is of true Christianity, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Following Christ is an invitation to know a person, and you can't know a person without questions, right? Have you ever thought about that before? Think of someone you love dearly, a friend. Think of how you grew in depth of relationship with them. How did that relationship become strong? It started with questions. Hey, where are you from? What do you do for living? What are your hobbies? What's your family like? What do you do for fun? You're examining. That's how relationships are built. And to be a disciple of Jesus is to first see for ourselves who Jesus is. To examine the evidence. Remember, that's the whole reason John wrote this book. That you may examine the evidence. That you may see who he is. That you may see and then believe and then live. Now, how do we do this today, though? Because I, I love this story, because they're like, hey, can we just come to your apartment and hang out? I don't know if he had an apartment, but you get the idea. But, but Jesus doesn't have an apartment in Waltham that we can just, like, go to after service, right? And we, you gotta, I, I love that, by the way, earlier from the kid's sermon, I learned that if, if I want to get my kids to clean, I gotta tell them Jesus is coming over for dinner. <laughs> Side note, right? So how, how do we examine the evidence? Well, we, we don't have Jesus apartment but we do have the scriptures right again that's that's what this is for specifically we have the eyewitness accounts of Jesus life and ministry that reveal to us the real Jesus so that we can examine for ourselves now we don't have the space this morning to go into all of the details of this but one of the greatest questions you can ask yourselves is why should I trust the Bible? We have that book on the back table that's called Why Trust the Bible that helps you see that this book that we hold in our hands is reliable. When you read the Bible in general and when you read the the gospel specifically, you have a reliable eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus. So examine him for yourself. This question is so important for us. And listen, I'm not just talking about doubters, though that's certainly true, but doubters and Christians alike, people who don't yet believe and people who have followed him for a long time. Have you examined Jesus for yourself, or is your understanding of Christ shaped more by culture or hearsay? I was speaking to a friend recently, who's not a Christian, and we were having a a great conversation about the gospel and Christianity. And as he was talking, I realized that his understanding of Jesus in Christianity was shaped primarily by American religion and politics. I I realized that the the Jesus that he rejects is not actually the real Jesus. Christianity began before 1776. I don't know if you guys knew that. Right? (laughs) And so I, I asked him, I said, Well, listen, imagine if I were to form an opinion on you based solely upon what others said about you. And I didn't even ask the, those closest to you. I just went to some coworkers and maybe even found some enemies of you. And I asked them a bunch of questions about you. And I wrote down a bunch of answers. And I said, Here's the conclusion I've come to about who you are. Do you, do you think that's a good thing? He said, Absolutely not. No, what I should do is I, I have your number. So I should pick up the phone and call you if I have questions. Or I should talk to those who are closest to you, those who know you well, those who who love you and care for you, right? See, for for my friend, it was American politics and religion that formed his view of Jesus. But we have to ask ourselves, what is it for us? It may be common cultural perception of Jesus as this really nice guy who just never offends anyone. He just wants to give you a hug all the time. But he steers away from objective truth. Maybe it's this heavy-handed religious background that has misunderstood the grace of Jesus. Or maybe, maybe it's something good. Maybe it's the faith of your parents or a loved one that is genuine faith, but it's not yours. It's theirs. Have you examined Jesus? John's disciples didn't settle for his testimony, even though it was a valid testimony. Andrew didn't just tell his brother Peter, hey, listen, take my word for it. And Philip didn't tell doubting Nathaniel, listen, don't argue with me. No, he said, come and see for yourself. We should examine for ourselves who Jesus is. Right? But, but, this is so important, this is number two, we must also make a decision with the evidence we examine. Number two, come and follow Jesus. Eventually, we have to decide, right? We examine the evidence, We consider who He is, and we have to decide. Are we going to follow Him, or are we going to keep going our own way? It's it's not a virtue to only ask questions and never answer them. Though it might seem virtuous. To always examine, but never come to conclusions. John's disciples not only examined Jesus, but they followed Him. First, they follow Him, literally, Andrew and this other unnamed disciple. They're wanting to know. Then they spend time with Jesus. And they actually commit their lives to him. They become his followers. How do we know this? Look at verse 40. One of the two disciples who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. So after spending time with Jesus, Andrew, notice that, he moves from curiosity to commitment. He moves from examination to pursuit. And he says, not we're searching for the Messiah, but we have found the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. We're not looking anymore. In fact, Andrew's so sure of this, and we'll come back to this in a second, that he's willing to invite others in as well. He goes and gets his brother. And we see Simon become a follower of Jesus, and he's given a new name by Jesus, Cephas, or Peter, which means rock. Jesus is telling Peter, that he's going to become this foundational leader as an apostle in the early church. We then see Philip, and probably what's one of my favorite verse, verses in this passage, becomes a follower of Jesus. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. That's all we get. Presumably, then he just says, Yes, sir. And he starts following him. Then Nathanael, though doubtful at first, verse 49 follows Jesus and becomes a worshiper of him. See, these five different disciples had five different stories, different journeys, and though we're not given a ton of detail in this narrative, they all had one thing in common. This was the beginning of the life-transforming journey of following Jesus. They would never be the same after this. This wasn't just a one-time decision that slowly faded for these men as more important things came along. They didn't just add a little bit of Jesus to their life plan. No, Jesus became their life plan. And they slowly learned a lesson. If you follow their journey through the Gospels, they learned a lesson that each of us need to learn. To truly follow Jesus is to solely follow Jesus. They were sold out to Him. I think there's this misunderstanding in Christianity that's prevalent today that we struggle with that says you can live your life the way you want, You can sort of determine your own purpose. As long as you go to church a few times, as long as you call yourself a Christian, don't do anything too bad. You made a decision for Jesus a long time ago, and and you're safe. And that's that's all well and good. And salvation is treated more like this sort of of get-out-of-hell-free ticket with absolutely no life transformation. That's not discipleship, and that's not following Jesus. I love what one author, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he calls that cheap grace. Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany during World War II, who created an underground seminary to train pastors. He was also a spy who stood firmly against Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime and was eventually killed for it. Needless to say, he was a man who understood the costly nature of following Jesus. And as I read this section, this is a long section from this book, but it's so good, and listen, Please read this book if you can, The Cost of Discipleship by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. But as I read this, I want you to ask yourself, have I cheapened God's grace and what it means to follow Him? Have I dumbed down what it means to truly be a disciple of Christ? Listen to what he says. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ For whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son... Too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. you hear that? What has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Friends, in what ways have we cheapened God's grace in our lives? I think one of the primary ways we do this is by compartmentalizing our lives and just trying to decide which areas we're going to let Jesus have. In which areas we're going to keep for ourselves? Jesus, you can have my Sunday mornings, my Tuesday nights, but not my entire schedule. Like, let's not get too crazy, right? You can you can have my friendships, but not my romantic relationships. You can have some of my money, but not too much. I mean, Jesus, you don't actually expect me to give till it hurts, do you? Essentially, we say, I I really want to follow Jesus, but I don't want it to cost me anything. And we forget that at the center of our faith is the God-man who willingly laid down his life on a Roman cross that we may live. And so Jesus responds to that tendency in us to compartmentalize following him with Luke 9.23. He says, listen, if anyone would come after me, let them deny himself And take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what discipleship is. In fact, if you're looking for a definition, here's how I would define it. To be a disciple of Jesus is to live all of life in increasing submission to the lordship of our master, Jesus Christ. All of it. Or to put it another way, Jesus gave all of his life for all of your life. He's the master. He's the Lord. So let's evaluate our relationship with Jesus. Turn turn that statement into a question. Am I living all of my life in increasing submission to the lordship of Jesus? If not, what areas do I need to let go of? How do I need to repent, turn from my sin and self-rule to Christ and his rule over my life? The call is to come and follow him with all of you. And then we see the third fundamental of discipleship. Come and share Jesus. Notice the first thing these followers of Jesus do after meeting him. They enroll in seminary for three years and learn how to share the gospel like a pro. No, I'm just kidding. Right? No, what do they do? They immediately start telling others about Jesus. I love this. John the Baptist shares Jesus with Andrew. There he is. Behold. Andrew shares Jesus with his brother Simon, Peter. Philip follows Jesus. Then he tells his friend Nathaniel. In fact, John writes with really clear language in verse 41 that the very first thing Andrew did was to go get his brother and tell him about Jesus. John wants to make it clear. Listen, he didn't do any. Don't mishear me. That's the first thing he did was go tell his brother. And D.A. Carson comments, he said, Andrew thus became the first in a long line of successors who have discovered that the most common and effective Christian testimony is is the private witness of a friend to a friend. I love that. And guess what? None of you know anything about Andrew. I don't know anything about Andrew. In fact, he's identified here as who? Simon Peter's brother. He lived in the shadow of his brother Peter. who We all know who Peter is, but no one knew who he was. All we know about Andrew is fisherman, disciple of John the Baptist brother of Peter, and the only thing that matters, faithful disciple of Jesus Christ who shared Jesus with whoever God put in his path. And we talk about this question as a church, right? What's the mission strategy of Seven Mile Road? That's a really good question. How do we hope to see people come to know Jesus? And the reality is we could, with some money and some strategic planning, we could fill this room up, right? Just get a sign that says, free beer, right? 10 a.m. might be a little early for that. but, Or if we had a, you know, we can get Kanye West to come lead worship. We we don't have enough money for that, right? But you, you get the point. You can do things to fill a room, but that's not what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus has called us to make disciples. And how does that happen? Just like it does here. So what's the mission strategy of Seven Mile Road? Two words. You are. You're like, that's not very original. I know. Isn't it great? Right? That's it. The gospel goes forth today and the church is built today the same way it was built in John chapter 1, the same way it was built in the book of Acts, and the same way it's been built all throughout church history, by ordinary people living their ordinary everyday lives as missionaries, as disciples, sharing Jesus with others. That's how it happens. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. And he puts this, this is is a little harsh, but let's hear it. He says, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. He says, recollect that you are either trying to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus in a totally silent tongue about him. So this passage lays out very simply for us that it is our calling to take what we've experienced To take the one we've met and say, listen, I want you to meet him. You've got to come and see this. Fortunately, this doesn't just tell us, hey, go share the gospel. We also see some very helpful principles here, some characteristics of sharing Jesus. And I just want to walk through these real quick. There's four of them. First, share Jesus simply. These men had no seminary training. There weren't any complex uh, apologetic arguments. Just the simple, listen, come and see what I've seen. Now, there's nothing wrong with training. Absolutely not. In fact, we hope to have an equipping class on sharing your faith in the spring. Training's important. Theological training is important. We should aim to grow in these things. But the point is, you don't need to wait until you're a stellar apologist or Bible scholar to tell someone what Christ has done for you. In fact, you shouldn't wait. One of the reasons I think we're, we're, we're so weak in the area of sharing Jesus with others is that we, just, we overcomplicate it. Have you experienced the forgiveness of sins in Jesus? Then you know enough to tell others about that. Start with your story. If you need help, lean into your church family, your gospel community. Share Jesus simply, but also share Jesus boldly. Now, this one's tough because we're very concerned with what other people think of us, right? And Andrew goes to his brother Peter, and it goes really well. It's like an evangelism success story. Peter, come check out Jesus, and then Peter gets a new name, right? But then, when Philip goes to Nathanael, it doesn't go well at first. Look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, I added that part, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? He was a Galilean, and there... Galileans looked down on Nazareth as this no-name sort of redneck town. Nothing prestigious can come out of there. They don't have any colleges. They don't have big business. In Nathaniel's mind, this was completely impossible. So he immediately rejects Philip. And friends, that's just the reality for us. If you tell others about who Jesus is, If you invite them to come and see, you will be rejected. People will think you're crazy. People will think you're weird, even if you try as hard as you can to not be. And we just need the Holy Spirit boldness to say, you know what? So what? This is too important for me to stay silent. We need boldness. Penn Gillette is a magician from Penn & Teller. He's a very outspoken atheist. But he tells this story of a fan who came up to him after a, a, a show and gave him a, a, a New Testament and said, listen, I wrote something in this for you, and I just want you to have it. And, and Gillette says he was kind and he was sane, you know, he wasn't a weirdo. And he looked him in the eyes and he talked to him and, and he gave him this Bible. And, and this is what Penn Gillette says. He goes on, he says, I've always said, this is an atheist, by the way, I've always said I don't respect people who don't Proselytize, who don't share their faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not share your faith? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible? And not tell them that. And then he goes on to give this illustration. If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Right? Don't tackle your friends. Right? But that's coming from the mouth of an atheist. See, the souls of our friends and our families and our children and our neighbors and those around us, coworkers, they're far more valuable than our ego and our social capital. So push through the awkwardness. Love them well by sharing Jesus boldly, but also share Jesus humbly. It's the third thing. Coupled with this boldness must be humility. Boldness without humility is obnoxious. Right? No one's calling us to be jerks for Jesus. See, when Philip is initially rejected by Nathaniel, he doesn't do what I might be tempted to do, snap back in frustration. He doesn't get defensive. He shows humility, and he extends an invitation to Nathaniel, and he says, come and see. See, we live in what I like to call a mic drop culture. You can YouTube that later. We love it when people say snarky one-liners, and then they diss others, and they just leave the room without any real conversation. It's called Twitter, right? But people aren't won to Christ by snarky comments. We need Christ-like humility coupled with boldness and patience. And that's the fourth thing. We share Jesus patiently. When Nathaniel initially rejects Philip, notice that he doesn't quit. Instead, he willingly walks with Nathaniel to discover who Jesus is. He says, come and see. He's saying, I'll walk with you to discover who this Jesus is. I love the story of Paul in Acts chapter 26. He's in chains toward the end of his life. He's in chains before King Agrippa. And Paul's the guy who just shares Jesus with everybody. In verse 28 says, Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And here's Paul's response. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. That's the mentality we need as we share Jesus with others. Yeah, we want you to come to Jesus now, but whether short or long, I'm willing to walk with you through this journey. And friends, it's usually long. We need to patiently love and share Jesus with those God has placed in our lives. All the while, this is so important, all the while trusting that God is the one who opens the hearts of unbelievers so that they believe the gospel not us. Our responsib- responsibility is simply to share Jesus boldly, humbly, patiently, and then trust God with the results. So come and share Jesus. And then lastly, the fourth fundamental of discipleship we see in this passage is come worship Jesus. The rest of this passage is devoted to Jesus' interaction with doubting Nathanael. In verse 47, Nathanael's going with Philip to see Jesus, And Jesus says to Nathanael, behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. In other words, Jesus sees Nathanael and he says, this man has no pretense. He's a straight shooter. We know that from the previous verse, right? He speaks honestly with no flattery. He calls it like he sees it. And he's come to discover who Jesus is. And Jesus being the all-knowing son of God, he knows this already about Nathanael even though he's never met him before. And then we read in verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This is another way of John breathing deeper meaning into that phrase, I saw you. He's saying, I know know who you were, and I always have. See, we have no idea what Nathanael was doing under that fig tree. There's a lot of speculations. But this revealed to Nathanael that Jesus had this supernatural knowledge of him. And that was enough for Nathanael to believe in an instant. And he models, as he believes, that this Jesus is who my friend Philip says he is. He models the right response of every true disciple of Jesus in verse 49. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Specifically, Nathaniel realizes something really important, that he is known by the Son of God in a personal and intimate way. And he responds in awe and worship, ascribing ultimate worth and value to Jesus in response to what Jesus has done. Friends, we worship Jesus. We're to come and worship Jesus because he first knows us. Just as Nathaniel was in awe of Jesus' supernatural knowledge of him, likewise, we should be in awe of his supernatural knowledge of us. No one knows you like Jesus knows you. I love how John Piper puts it. He says, Deeper than knowing God is being known by God. What defines us as Christians is not profoundly that we have come to know him, but that he took note of us and made us his own. See, what this shows us is that the strength to be a disciple The starting point of discipleship is not found within ourselves, but in the grace of God. Jesus puts it this way in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You notice the order of John 10, 27? My sheep hear my voice, I know them first, and then what happens? Then they follow me. We worship Jesus because he knows us first. But there's another reason to be in awe. We also worship Jesus because he has come to save us. Look at verse 50 through 51. Jesus answered Nathanael, who was in awe of the supernatural knowledge of Jesus. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus says, listen, you believe because I know you, because of the supernatural knowledge, but I'm going to show you something greater. It's Jesus' way of saying, listen, you, you haven't seen anything yet. And then he refers to this story in Genesis chapter 28, verse 12, of Jacob's dream. Genesis 28, 12 says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven and behold the angels of god were ascending and descending on it. And this is one of those things where you're like, okay, what is going on here? This seems out of left field. Well, this comes at a time in Jacob's life where he's very discouraged. He's homeless, he's in danger, he's very self-focused, but God reminds him in this moment. He says, "Jacob, my heavenly presence, you're soon to be renamed Israel a few chapters later." My heavenly presence is with you. My promises will not fail. The promise to bring heaven to earth is going to come true. And so Jesus refers to Genesis 28, 12. And what's he saying here? He's saying, listen, the ultimate promise of God to Jacob that he's going to bring his heavenly presence to earth is fulfilled in me. You're amazed that I have some supernatural knowledge of you, Nathaniel, but let me tell you that I have come to bring all of God's presence to earth, something far greater than me knowing what tree you're sitting under. He's saying, I'm the the ladder, I'm the stairway to heaven. Yes, that's a song, right? John Calvin comments here, he says, Jesus is the medium through which the fullness of all celestial blessings flow down to us and through which we in turn ascend to God. Now, what does all of this have to do with discipleship? It's very simple. Following Jesus is not maintained by your own strength, but by a clear vision of Jesus and his work for us in the gospel. One of the worst things that we can do with a sermon like this is take this and turn it into a bunch of to-dos. All right, I've got to go follow Jesus, right? I've got to share Jesus with this many people. And once I do that, then I will be a disciple. I just need the willpower to do that myself. That's called works righteousness, and it's the complete opposite of the gospel. Jesus is the latter, I'm the one who brings heaven to earth, he says. I'm the gateway to heaven. I'm the ladder, and guess what? You can't climb that ladder. That's why he came down to us. That's why he lived the life that we could not live, a life of righteousness. That's why he died the death we deserve to die in our place on a Roman cross. That's why he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, that we who believe in him may receive new life. The penalty of sin is removed, but also the power of sin no longer has a hold on us and we are empowered to follow Jesus by his grace, not by self-reliance. That's the gospel. And friends, it's not a fundamental of discipleship. It's the fundamental of following him. And it leads us to worship him, to respond in awe. So how are we going to respond to this call this morning? Let's respond as Nathanael responded. Let's respond by worshiping him. Let's answer his call to come and see him. Examine him. Find that he is altogether lovely. Let's follow him not in part, but wholly, forsaking all other vain, empty, earthly pursuits. Let's share him freely. Not perfectly, but freely freely with those around us, inviting them to come and see. Friends, let's do this rooted not in our own strength, but in a clear vision of Jesus who's worthy of our worship. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Let's pray.